So, <clears throat> the difference between law and rule and the purpose behind law and rule um, became really obvious to me just the other day um, when uh, Megan was in the kitchen and she was, I believe, having a chai. I can't quite remember the story, but I do remember that, that she was having a chai or something like that. And, and of course, on the, the chai packet, there is the classic thing that we see on a lot of products, which is, of course, the Health Star rating. Now, as you can imagine, chai powder, which is probably 90% sugar, did not achieve a high star rating when it came to the packet. And my son, Zeke, who's four years old, he noticed this. And he noticed that Megan was having uh, this uh, chai, as we regularly do of a morning, and, and he was concerned, you know, because, of course, this was an everyday no, sometimes food, right? Sometimes food, of course, because that two stars. I mean, you surely couldn't have that on a regular basis. It's only two stars. What is going to happen? And we started to kind of explain to him that, um, yeah, you're right. You know, obviously, just a, a couple of stars is something you're only supposed to have on occasion, and and that's probably a good guide. But of course, we're not actually designed just to drink chai every single day. Anyway, this kind of planted a thought in my mind the following day when I started to eat a muesli bar. And um, at the time, I opened it up and I saw that I was eating an Oh My Choc Uncle Toby's muesli bar. Now, let me explain to you what this muesli bar was. It was oats covered in chocolate with choc chips. And I looked at the packet and I saw that it had four health stars. Now, you might be like, oh no, that wouldn't have been the Oh My Choc. That must have been the choc chip only. No, on the individual packet, it had four health stars. So I stood there feeling pretty good about myself, thinking, well, look how healthy I am. I might just eat three or four of these. Now, of course, this doesn't really make sense to me. And I started to think about this and go, what is with this health star system? We can't treat this as like some sort of absolute rule because, of course, if I ate Oh My Choc muesli bars every day, I'm most likely going to get diabetes. I went to look at the milk that was in the fridge and there I was, four stars, as good as my muesli bar. And, um, and so I started to think, okay, well, this makes a bit more sense. That's all well and good. And then as you walk along the supermarket looking at other varieties of milk, I noticed this super duper fairy floss milk that somehow managed to achieve three and a half stars. And, um, and I don't know if you know much about super dupers, but I'm pretty sure that's just sugar water. And the idea that I'm going to drink a pink sugar water in milk form, just three and a half stars, that's more than a pass, people. Right? That's more than a pass, right? That's heading toward distinction territory. And I started to question the entire system. Thankfully, I learned that that actually produced a, uh, a special version of bubblegum that was actually four stars. So thank goodness I no longer have to drink regular milk anymore because I can just drink blue-flavored milk. Now, you look at this kind of stuff and you go, clearly something is amiss. I'm treating this incorrectly because I'm going to treat this as pure nutrition and, and pure direction for my life. Make sure you choose the four-star products. Make sure you choose the five-star products. All I'm going to do is end up eating chocolate muesli bars and drinking bubblegum zupa-dupa milk, right? It's just not going to work. There has to be something that's going on behind the system. And while I do not say that it's 100% foolproof and there's plenty of internet articles apparently to refute such things, what I did learn was that this star system was designed to compare the nutrition of similar products. 
So your poor sour cream isn't going to be up against, you know, your rolled oats or whatever it might be. It's designed to act as a guide. It has a purpose behind the system rather than treating it like as long as you follow the system, you will be healthy. Now, what does this got to do with Jesus? Well, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to be doing over the course of the AM services this year, it's very, very easy to treat the Sermon on the Mount like a list of rules. As long as I follow it, I look at it, and I do it, then I am doing what is right in God's eyes, and God will look favorably upon me. But actually what we see in the Sermon on the Mount, this profound teaching of Jesus, is that there is this undercurrent of purpose behind the whole thing, that if we just treat it like a law, it is easy to miss. And so when we approach the passage that we do today, this is going to become very, very apparent how we need to have a very uh, discerning view of what Jesus says over these next couple of weeks. You see, in Matthew chapter 17, I'm just going to move this because I'm definitely going to headbutt it at some point. Um, it says in Matthew chapter 17, and this is just after the Beatitudes, which I spoke about, it says, do not think, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come, not come, sorry, to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, now this is really interesting, okay, because we sometimes we think about Jesus, right, and what we can do as Christians be like, oh, Old Testament, like that was like old style. Jesus is all about New Testament, right, which what we end up actually calling that, it's actually called replacement theology. It's called, I'm going to embrace only what's in the new and I'm going to completely and utterly reject the old, right? And it's a temptation for Christians, especially if you've been part of church for a long time, we can fall into the trap of thinking, well, the old is literally old. It is gone. It is obsolete because we've got Jesus now. And yet Jesus says explicitly here at the beginning of his teaching, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. And this kind of replacement theology, this idea that I accept the New Testament, I reject the Old Testament, actually comes from a deep misunderstanding of what the law actually is. And that's what we're going to explore today. So first of all, what is the law that Jesus is referring to? Now, when he's using this term law and the prophets, he's referring to Torah. Now, Torah is the word um, that is used for the first five books of the Old Testament, Torah. Okay, and, uh, and sometimes it's called the, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. And, and these were the first five books of the Old Testament and they were deeply, deeply profound when it came to what it looked like to live out faithfulness to Yahweh in the Jewish tradition. Now, remembering that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, okay, and he grew up within that tradition, all right, he would have shown faithfulness and, and, and to, to the Jewish law, okay. And so when Jesus talks about not wanting to abolish the law, he's saying, I'm not actually about rejecting the Torah. I'm not about rejecting the rule. And then he says the prophets. I'm not rejecting the books of the prophets again in the Old Testament. It's just that the law that Jesus hears, right, and the thing that would have come to mind for them when Jesus said law, the thing that they were kind of rubbing up against every day was actually not the law of God anymore. This is the difference, Okay. What had happened is in the first century, there had become this essentially this modern kind of version of this religious piety, okay, where it had become legalistic and oppressive and harsh, 
in application, such to the extent that many people felt like they had been somehow excluded from the way of God. Hence why the Beatitudes were, of course, an invitation that, hey, if you think that you're out, you're probably in. And so Jesus makes it clear from the get-go that it wasn't about making the law obsolete and that Jesus wasn't anti-law. He was actually anti what the law had become. What I love this is in Matthew 5.18, the next verse, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Okay? So Jesus wasn't making the law obsolete. He was bringing perfection to the law. He wasn't saying the law isn't important. He was saying, you guys, you hear us, the way that you have experienced the law is not reflective of what God desires. In fact, if God's desire for the law was actually fulfilled, nothing is going to change, not even the smallest detail in the Greek, iota. Not even the smallest little piece of the law will change. You see, Jesus knew that the law as God intended it, this is very important, remained forever essential to kingdom living. And the fulfillment that he had in mind was not for the purpose of making them somehow humanly acceptable to God. It's like if I achieve all the rules, then I'll be acceptable to God, like the Pharisees wanted. But actually the law was given for their thriving. The law was given for their blessing, for their blessing and for the blessing of others. And, and that even here in this room might seem foreign you're like, what law to bless me and to bless others? Isn't law just a set of rules? If that's what you're thinking, then you are not alone because that's exactly what Jesus' hearers were thinking at the time. And you might have grown up in a tradition where that has been the main narrative. Well, actually, Jesus wants to say something different. And this becomes really clear over the next couple of weeks because straight after, he goes on to make a direct connection between how people have treated the law. You've heard it said, Right? Jesus will begin, and then to go on about what it looks like to participate in the kingdom of heaven. And he gives six specific examples that we're going to be working through in the following weeks. Again, in the NLT in 517, it says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses, that's the Torah, or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. You see, the law, right, well, sorry, sorry, I say, sorry, the kingdom of heaven, the way of God wasn't actually about keeping the laws or the commands of which at that point there were 613 established laws, okay? But rather it was about keeping the purpose of the law. And essentially what had happened was that they had confused the what of the law with the why of the law. Why does this law exist? Why was this given to us? We're so busy keeping the law, thinking that if we do it, we'll become acceptable to God, and that's not the point. And Jesus says, wait, 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 hey, don't worry, I'm not going to abolish the law, I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to teach you what it looks like to embrace it in its fullness so you can experience what it was meant to be. You see, we can do exactly the same thing. We can think that we're following or not following the rules of being a Christian, and at the same time, we can completely miss the heart of what the commands actually existed for. And to understand this, we need to go back into the history of Israel's story and what the purpose of the law was. There's two things that I want to identify here really quickly. And if you haven't been part of Christian tradition for a long time, these might be new, but some of you will be very, very familiar with these particular significant points in Israel's history. You see, 
I'm going to give you the reveal. The purpose of the law, as was given to the people, was designed to create a kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. Now, we'll talk about that a little bit later. That is people who participate in and invite people into the kingdom of heaven. That is to show the world what God is like. And that began with the call of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, sorry, all the way back in Abraham, it says, I will make you, Abram, should I say, into a great nation, and I will bless you. This is God's promise to him. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the, the promise over Abraham, or Abram at the time, was always that you are blessed in order to be a blessing. Then when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they were at the base of Mount Sinai where God was essentially having this kind of marriage ceremony with them, where this covenant was being made and they'd received the Ten Commandments, he says this in Exodus 19. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now... If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, again, this might be really foreign, but we have to connect this directly with what Jesus is talking about when it comes to the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law that was given in the Old Testament was always to produce a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, this is important. Not a kingdom with priests, but a kingdom of priests, right? Not a kingdom with priests, but a kingdom of priests. Now, they would ultimately have their own priests. We see this in Leviticus and the Levites, right? But the primary reason they were given the Levites was to learn and understand how to become a priest to the world around them. That is for every single person to embrace the priesthood of what it means to embody the divine and share that with a broken world. Now, I get that this whole word priest can be a bit of a tricky one, right? Because when we think of priests, certain imagery comes to mind. Maybe you think of like a pastor or robes or whatever it is. I remember going through a shopping center once and, um, and I, I met someone at one of those little booths and I kind of got interrupted. I wasn't too busy and they said, oh, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And they said, oh, right, so no sex, drugs or rock and roll. That was their natural like, assumption. And I showed him my wedding ring. I said, no, no, we're all right. <laughs> and, um, but, but, but that's the, the common understanding, right? And, and there's, there's history and sometimes even pain attached to this idea of, of priests. Uh, but, but people get the wrong idea about this. And so what I want us to do is just quickly unpack what it actually meant for the people to be priests, what it means for us to be a priesthood. Because, of course, later in Peter, This is exactly the word that he uses for the church. It should come as no surprise. You see, back in the Old Testament, in the law, there were four roles of the priest, and we can see this through the book of Leviticus. If you haven't read the book of Leviticus, man, it's a great read. If you understand that it's about understanding what it means to be a priest, it'll make sense. But we see these four particular purposes of the priesthood, which was ultimately the purpose of the law. The first one was that the priest was there to put God on display. 
it actually shouldn't surprise us that the priest would wear some really weird stuff. They'd wear like robes that were kind of bizarre that you wouldn't usually see people wearing. If you look around at photos from the first century and the priests of the day, some of them were whacked. Like they just wore these really bizarre things. And that was supposed to be the case because if they looked like everyone else, then they wouldn't be distinctive, right? They were there to put God on display, to look different, to act different because Yahweh, Jesus, our God, is different, okay? The whole, to be a, a kingdom priest, a holy nation, to be holy means to be set apart. It means to be distinct. And so what it means to be a priest is actually to look different. And so the law is there to help us to look different so that people get a picture of our God of compassion and love. And back in, in, the, in the time around Sinai, they had the Levites and they would be right there with the tabernacle in the middle of the camp. So everyone could see what the priests would do. So they could learn from the priests. They weren't kind of off to the side. They were right there in the middle. And they got this understanding of what this God that they were learning about was like. The second thing that the, the priests would do would be to help people navigate their atonement. Now, I know there's some heavy language in here, okay? But what we do know is that we have guilty conscience, right? We know that we don't do the right thing. And with this guilty conscience that we all carry, we need to help people to know what to do with this. And this was the basis of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The priest would explain what was taking place. They would explain what was going on on the altar so that you could know with assurance that you were okay with God. If you understood that when I've done that sacrifice, you and God are okay, that person can walk away not carrying the burden of guilt within their heart. And that is a profound act of grace to know where you stand with God. You know, atonement is actually a really big deal. See, because this is what happens. If you hear a whole bunch of laws without having your conscience cleaned first, they're going to be problems. Mostly that we're going to get hung up on, well, this is how I'm made right, by following all these laws. So if we don't have a means of articulating how someone gets right with God and they see a bunch of laws, they're just going to think that by following the laws, they're going to get right with God. Is there anyone else who's ever been guilty of that? <laughs> right? This is why what Jesus has done is so significant, right? If we can say, you are actually okay with God because of what Jesus has done, suddenly the laws, the rules, aren't going to have that kind of compulsion to, for me to fix my guilty conscience, for me to seek my atonement through the law. God says, you're right with me. Okay? You have to understand this. So the fourfold role of a priesthood of which God desired his people to be and of which we are extension of is to put God on display, to help people navigate their atonement. The third thing is to intercede on behalf of others. That is, the priest stands in the gap to assist with communication in both directions. Okay? A priest takes things that God is trying to show or teach people and the priest helps explain it. Right? But also, a priest stands before God and pleads for God's forgiveness and compassion on behalf of the world. Can you see how this isn't just a role for a certain group? But this is how something that all of us are called to embrace. This is what the law was pointing to. It was saying, hey, step into this and you will discover what it means to be a priesthood. 
a priesthood that puts God on display, a priesthood that helps people navigate their atonement, a priesthood that actually intercedes on behalf of others. God is up to something. Let me tell you what that's about. I don't feel like I can get to God. Let me intercede and pray on your behalf. We can stand in the gap. And lastly, in Leviticus, we see that the fourth role is to distribute resources to those in need. There's always going to be people who have more than they need, and there's always going to be people who have needs. And the priesthood, through the law, was responsible for taking those resources, and some of them, God says, need to be used internally, and the rest are used to sustain uh, the ministry, and the abundance is supposed to be redistributed to those with needs. And so these four things right here is what Jesus was tapping into when he talks about the true purpose of the law. And it's what he demonstrated in and through his own life. When you look at these four things, this is what Jesus embodied. You see, the law had been turned into some form of religious kind of legalism rather than an invitation into the priesthood, which is what it was supposed to be. An invitation in the priesthood that would bless them and then bless the entire world. This is what the law was about. This was the purpose. And this is what the people have missed. Now, please don't hear me wrong. Sometimes there were practical advantages of following Torah and that law. Um, but that line of reasoning doesn't actually apply to every single law in the Torah. It's really important to understand that. First and foremost, this was about becoming a distinct, holy priesthood. Not just for some but for the entire nation, okay, to put God on display to the world around them. This is our call as the church today, right? And Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to achieve its purpose. So listen up, because you've been getting this thing wrong all this time. Jesus continues, so... With this in mind, that is, the purpose of the law was to create a priesthood for all people. If you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws, the purpose of those laws, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you see how a statement like that could be very poorly interpreted if you had a legal understanding? They're going, but the Pharisees are keeping like the, the best, they're the best of the best. They're keeping the law to the utmost. How could my righteousness be better than that? With a legal understanding, it can't. What Jesus is talking about when he talks about better, right? is he's talking about a better kind of righteousness to pursue that which God actually wants. Actually, the purpose of the law and the prophets. It's not about doing the law better. It's about actually embracing the kind of righteousness that reflects the purpose of the law and the prophets. And so God's call to live in obedience, it's a missional call. Even today, it's about participating in what God first called Abram to do and then his people to do. That all the nations, that is all the world will be blessed through you. 
And that is what the call to priesthood is all about. So as we explore, particularly over these next few weeks, and we look at some specifics around things like anger and murder and and adultery and lust and some of these areas that we could be so quick to jump in and turn it into some sort of legal rule and say, have I ticked the box? We need to first and foremost remember this is about becoming a priesthood. It's not about getting the laws right so that we can be part of God's team. God says, what I'm asking you to do is not about making you good enough, It's about joining me as a partner and putting the world back together. This is what the call of priesthood is about. In 1 Peter 2, just in case you need some extra New Testament to be convinced, it says, as you come to him, the living stone, referring to Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be what? A holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This has always been the purpose. So there's going to be a lot of temptation to slide into law so that we feel like we're right with God. But we need to remember the purpose of the law is to create a priesthood. It's a missional call for every single one of us. So what does it look like? And this is the challenge I leave you with today. What does it look like for you to embrace your role as a priest? And and it may mean kind of letting go of some of that kind of imagery of priests that you've held for some time, but when it comes to what it means to embrace the priesthood, as a nation, as a people who are putting God on display and helping people navigate that guilty conscience, interceding on behalf of others, distributing resources to those in need, this is all of our responsibility. So what does it look like to embrace your role as a priest? And how might the fulfilment of the law bless you so that you are a blessing to the world. Because that is what Jesus was on about. Make no mistake. I encourage you as we journey through the Sermon on the Mount to actually read Matthew chapters 5 through 7 several times as we go through. It's going to take a few reads to absorb this differently for some people. But it is so critical to understanding the invitation that Jesus has extended to every single one of us and also the invitation that he extends to this broken world. And I hope, I hope that as we journey through this series, you can discover that in a more profound way. Let me pray. Now, Jesus, we're all guilty of those times where we've turned something that you created to be beautiful and life-giving for us into a world and turned it into some sort of checklist. When we turn into a checklist, maybe we feel good about ourselves or maybe we don't check enough boxes and we feel bad, but both of those things is just not what you intended. We recognize it's a recipe for feeling in or out. A kind of piety and arrogance or a kind of desperation and despair. And God, neither of those things you created us to experience. You know that we need you. We know that your way is the best way and we want to thank you for the invitation that your law was 
to be a holy priesthood. And so, God, help us to navigate what it looks like to be that in this world. What it looks like to be distinct. What it looks like to help people navigate their atonement. What it looks like to intercede. What it looks like to distribute to those in need. God, you did this. Jesus, you did this. Help us to follow your example. And to not get caught up in the kind of legalism that will actually ensure that we miss the kingdom of God, but rather step into your way and experience the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God in its fullness. We pray this in your name. Amen.